40 here so when i started live streaming on a regular basis i had co-hosts such as vivian veritas and uh, professor casey uh, dennis dale and then later we added uh, ricardo to the mix kevin michael grace kyle a duvid like uh, just a smorgasbord of all-stars and was i threatened by adding new talent to the show did i feel like oh they're taking the spotlight away from me I'm losing control. I'm no longer the center of attention because I have all these other compelling characters on the show. No, I rejoiced bringing all these people on the show. So what the hell is wrong with Dak Prescott, the Dallas Cowboys quarterback? He is, he, he can't handle it that Micah Parsons and C.D. Lamb are getting more attention and he's fallen apart. So I think Cooper Rush should probably be the Cowboys starting quarterback. Well, good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson China. It is Friday, so you're probably wondering how your trillion-dollar Build Back Better project is going, the one that Joe Biden promised would save us from the problems his party manufactured during COVID. Well, there are a lot of ways to measure the progress of Build Back Better, but let's start with the most obvious, poverty. Poverty is rising fast in the United States. The financial markets have sunk to below where they were in the middle of the so-called pandemic when Joe Biden took office. If you've been brave enough to follow the descent of your 401k this week, keep in mind that it's actually worse than it appears. Whatever you think you have has been devalued by deflation, inflation. So not only do you have less, you can buy less with it. And if you multiply that by an entire country, you see why household net worth is declining faster than it has at any time in the history of the country. And that's why millions of Americans are now not just thinking about postponing their retirement, they're considering a move to Tijuana to afford housing and dentistry and gasoline. So the economy, in other words, is not getting better, and no informed person seems to think it's going to get better anytime soon. So what does Joe Biden, who promised to fix it, think of that? Well, it'll be interesting to know. Unfortunately, when he spoke in Washington today, he didn't really tell us. Instead, he got, as he often does, sidetracked and went off about some relationship he had with a 12-year-old girl. Watch this. You guys say hi to me. We go back a long way. She was 12, I was 30, but anyway. It's hilarious. We go back a long way. She was 12, I was 30. <laughs> anyway. Come on, lady, what? it's shower time. Who's Joe Biden talking about? Who is he talking about? What exactly was he describing? It sounded like a late-life confession. We don't know, actually. For once, the White House is not clarifying what Joe Biden said. They're just walking away slowly. And the New York Times is never going to get to the bottom of it, obviously, not just because they're Democratic partisans, which they are, but because, like everybody else, they don't take Joe Biden very seriously when he talks. Whatever Biden's other talents may be, shelling for credit card companies or having Michael Jackson-level plastic surgery or showering with his daughter, he has a lot of trouble talking. He's not good at that. He rambles. He doesn't finish his thoughts, such as they are. He makes bizarre, unexclaimed claims, like the one you just heard. Joe Biden, again... Whatever you say about him is not an articulate man. It's not a partisan point. It's universally acknowledged. Like the illegal aliens he's allowed into this country by the millions, Joe Biden can barely speak English. Some people ask whether you are fit for the job. And when you hear that, I wonder what you think. Watch me. 
married her child, you know the needs of innocent very to live to live and not having the money to pay for it. Not a joke. Think about it. Think about what you'd think about. You're going to have make that all cement. You're going to use that as basis to build on because you need security. You need stability for what you have. on And you're going to build up stories beyond. I mean, this is incredible. This is the United States Camara, for God's sake. Mr. President, thank you. How would you say your mental focus is? Oh, it's focused. <laughs> I, say it's, I think it's, I, I haven't, look, I have trouble even mentioning, even saying to myself my own head the number of years. I no more think of myself as being as old as I am than fly. Mm. So obviously Joe Biden is old and senile. He's 79. And at that age, sentences like stairs become a challenge. We're not judging, by the way, anyone who's past 50 can feel the loss of acuity. If you're being honest, there comes a day when you realize I'm just not going to be able to finish the Rubik's Cube this week. The older you get, the less sharp you become. That's the natural process. Or so we have always assumed. But recently, we've noticed something that changed our view. And that something is called Kamala Harris. Or is it Camilla? She's on tape using both pronunciations, so your guess is as good as ours. As a kind of tiebreaker, we're going to go ahead and call her Carmella, but it doesn't matter. The point is, if you're not even certain how to pronounce your own first name, you're likely senile. But here's the thing. Carmella Harris is only 57 years old. She's 22 years younger than Joe Biden, young enough to be his daughter, which is to say young enough to shower with him. <laughs> and too young for most kinds of dementia. <laughs> so, of course, she's probably medically in her right mind. And yet, despite that fact, here's how Carmela Harris actually speaks. We all believe that when we talk about the children of the community, they are a children of the community. And so what we all experienced is on an electric school bus, on an electric bus, no exhaust, no diesel smell. It is time for us to do what we have been doing and that time is every day every day it is time for us to agree she would look down at me and Kamala what do you want what do you want and I looked back up at her and I said freedom <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna literally see the craters on the moon with your own eyes oh my with your own eyes I'm telling you Ukraine is a country in Europe it exists next to another country called Russia. Russia is a bigger country. Russia is a powerful country. Russia decided to invade a smaller country called Ukraine. So basically that's wrong. We know community banks are in the community and understand the needs and desires of that community as well as the talent and capacity of community. It is the perspective of, of a woman who grew up a, a, a black child in America who was also a prosecutor who also has a mother who arrived here at the age of 19 from India, who also, you know, likes hip hop. <laughs> like, what do you want to know? It could go on, but to be clear, a community bank is in the community, of course. So it turns out that if anything, if we're being honest, Carmela Harris is even less articulate than the mannequin whose job she wants to take. 
And that's odd. It seems unnatural. Do Democratic politicians get dumber as they get younger? Have they inverted the process of cognitive decline? That would seem to defy the laws of nature. But the facts suggest it is happening. And we know this from watching John Fetterman. John Fetterman's only 53. 53 by any measure, and certainly from the perspective of those of us who are 53, seems pretty darn young, really just hitting your stride. And yet when John Fetterman opens his mouth to reveal mossy, unbrushed teeth, he makes Joe Biden and Carmela Harris look like William F. Buckley on Adderall, silver-tongued and supernaturally fluent. Check out this war crime against language. Come out and step with us. We will be able to stand with you in D.C. Send me to Washington, D.C. to send so I can work with Senator Casey and I can champion the union way of life in Jersey. What is wrong with demanding for an easy, safe kind of their income, a path to a safe place for them to win. Eliminate the filibuster. Get things done. Send us back to New Jersey. Send me to DC for you. Now that's unfair, you say, because John Fetterman had a stroke this spring. And that's true, by the way, not that it stopped him from running for U.S. Senate from Pennsylvania. And we do feel sorry for him. But even before his current brain damage, Fetterman was like this. Listening to John Fetterman was like hearing a car backfire. There were loud and jarring noises, but you couldn't be certain what they were. Was that gunfire? Was it fireworks? You didn't know. It definitely wasn't human language. And at the time, Fetterman was many years away from qualifying for Social Security. So you could not blame Alzheimer's. And even when his words were, strictly speaking, intelligible, they still, when you added them together, made no sense. In March of 2021, to name one example, Fetterman demanded the release of all 1,200 people, all of them, held in prison in Pennsylvania for second-degree murder. Watch. I hope that it could lead to a conversation that would free close to 1,200 people of a legacy that never made sense, that encompasses victims' input, encompasses their conduct and behavior in prison. It takes a look at the, the resources that are wasted on that. So even Joe Biden wouldn't say that. It's too stupid. So it's hard to avoid the conclusion in the Democratic Party, at least at the leadership level, they're getting dumber as they get younger. And you know this from looking at the party's future standard bearer, Sandy Cortez. Sandy Cortez is even younger than John Fetterman. She's young enough to be his daughter, in fact. She's 32, and as far as we know, she has not had a stroke. Sandy Cortez grew up in a generation that has carried a computer in their pocket since childhood with instant access to every recorded fact in history. And then she majored in international relations at the highly prestigious Boston University, which some say is accredited. So she's had every advantage, and she currently enjoys the greatest advantage of all, we thought, which is youth. So you would imagine that Sandy Cortez would be Churchill in yoga pants, a magician with words and data, a master of linguistics and erudite discourse. Oh, no. No. She's this. There are studies that show that women who wear makeup or regularly wear, like, a 
a decent amount of makeup kind of show up to the office and glam also make more money. And so at that point, it stops being these calculations and decisions stop being about choice and they start being about patriarchy. <laughs> we live in systems that were largely built for the convenience of men and oftentimes were designed with the subjugation of women and queer people in mind. So Sandy Cortez has devolved to the point where she doesn't even bother to make political arguments. She whines about men as she applies eyeshadow in the ladies' room, just like they do at every restaurant in New York City on a Saturday night, and then expects you to support, say, banning passenger cars as a result. So we make fun of Joe Biden all the time, but even senile old Joe Biden can muster more than that. So once again, how do we explain this? Well, in effect, Democrats are challenging the core premise of Charles Darwin. They're devolving. Our Surgeon General has uploaded a picture of himself enjoying an ice cream cone without any ice cream in it. Really? The presidential debates are going to take place two years from now. Now, we've always said, obviously, they're going to dump Joe Biden because he can't handle it. Now we're beginning to think they're going to stick with Joe Biden because he's clearly the smartest person in a leadership position at the Democratic Party. Now, we don't know. We're not privy to the discussions. But when that candidate is chosen and appears on stage two years from now, we know exactly the argument that person will make because it's inevitable. And here it is. Introduced for the first time ever anywhere, the 45th president of the United States of America. So that's where we're headed. If you no longer respect language, and they don't, after all, you no longer use language, and they won't, and you're left with merely a primal scream. Bet on it. That's coming. Jason Whitlock is the host of Fearless and a keen observer of linguistic reality. He joins us tonight. Jason Whitlock, thanks so much for coming on. We have made so much fun of Joe Biden being out of it. Obviously, he very much is. But he still is more impressive than the people who will replace him. He is. And, and Tucker, as much as I enjoyed that uh, monologue and understand to some degree you're being tongue in cheek and just pointing out the obvious and making fun of these people. And some of it made me laugh looking at that. But this is very serious. And, and part of it, when I was listening to you, I started thinking about biblical scripture and I started thinking about where the Democrats are and their godless policies that they're beholden to. And, and I started thinking about Romans 1, uh, verse 22, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. And that's what we're witnessing. We're watching a group yes. of people that think they're the smartest people in the history of the planet. They think that they don't need God. They think that God's truth is irrelevant. And they're becoming fools led by fools. They, they have re reprobate minds. They, their minds are given to a wickedness that happens when you ignore God's logic. That's also from Romans, verse 28, if you guys want to go look it up. But it's so obvious to everybody, even their peers, even their supporters, someone like a Bill Maher, longtime comedian, big platform, big brand, 
always the leftist. We're watching him pivot in real time to mocking his own base every Friday night on HBO. And it's because that's how outlandish and insane and how corrupted their minds are and how foolish they look that he can't resist week after week after week. Okay, enough with these trivialities. Let's start talking Dallas Cowboys football. Did you see their stunning win on Sunday night? There were seven and a half point underdogs. Their backup quarterback, who's made it through the waivers multiple times, nobody wants Cooper Rush, and yet he leads leads them on a game winning drive in the final minutes of the game. Completes three key passes down the field gets them into field goal position, and they win this stunning 20-17 to 17 victory. And what the hell is wrong with Dak Prescott? Dak Prescott signs a contract that gets them uh, gets him $75 million last year, and he, he obviously can't handle it. He, he was getting all weepy before last season about his, his brother died, and so Dak Prescott had these mental health challenges. And now he hasn't beaten a good team in about 10 months since the the Cowboys beat the New England Patriots in the middle of last year. Dak's last 12 games have been awful, right? In his last 12 games, he played six good teams. He lost to all six. He was awful. He was the worst I have ever seen him play uh, last Sunday night against the Buccaneers. He only drove them for three points. He was just awful. He has no rapport with his wide receivers. So, I mean, when I brought Vivian Veritas on this show, did I have a rapport when I brought Vivian Veritas and her sister on this show? Did I have rapport with them? Yes, I had rapport. When I brought Vivian Veritas and her sister and Professor Casey on the show, did we have rapport? Yes, we had rapport. When I brought Vivian and her sister and Casey and Dennis Dale on the show to do weekly Torah talks, did we have rapport? We were like the, the three amigos, right? And then... And then my golden child, Ricardo, right? I bring Ricardo on the the show. He's like my Micah Parsons, all right? Micah Parsons is the second coming of Lawrence Taylor, this incredible Dallas Cowboys linebacker and edge rusher, right? So at one hand, you want him to play on the edge all the time because he, he, he pressures the quarterback about half the time when he rushes, just unbelievable abilities rushing off the edge, but it's so tiring that he's not going to be able to play every down if you put him on the edge that consistently. So you have to back him off the edge sometimes, have him play a little linebacker so he can he can catch his breath. But when I bring Ricardo on the show, was I like, oh, no, now Ricardo's going to get the spot, spotlight because he's just so damn good at, you know, sacking the quarterback? No, you know, I, I welcome Ricardo into, you know, this this circle of love, of an inclusion that, that we've developed here. Then Kevin Michael Grace, all right? Kevin Michael Grace on the show, just like bowing down to Kevin Michael Grace's grit and, and wisdom and, and humor and history and, and experience. Loved having Kevin Michael Grace on the show for almost two years. We did something like over 300 shows together. And then uh, Kyle, young Kyle, like like a son to me. I mean, was was I threatened that, that young Kyle, you know, was so brilliant and had so many uh, great challenges and new ways of thinking about things? No, and then and then Duvid, all right. Duvid's good for you know the unpredictable perspective, all right. So, what the hell's wrong with Dak Prescott? He's just not on the same page with his wide receivers. He's no leader, right? He he doesn't inspire any confidence. If you look at how lost the Dallas Cowboys looked under Dak Prescott on opening night, 
versus how fired up they look under Cooper Rush. So Cooper Rush has only started two games in the National Football League. All right, he won both games. He drove his team down the field to win both games in the final minutes. And now he's leading the Cowboys into New York to take on the Giants Monday night. So if the Cowboys win Monday night, and then if they beat the Washington Commanders the next Sunday, that will make Cooper Rush 4-0. and And we're talking a genuine quarterback controversy in Dallas. And Dak Prescott just does not seem to be able to handle his $40 million a year salary. He is just crumbled in front of us. He has been awful his last 12 games. Cooper Rush, in his two games, has played better than Dak Prescott in his last 12 games. So I'm thinking... I know you're going to say 40, that's crazy, there's no way this is true, because Cooper Rush does not have as good an arm as Dak Prescott, he's not as mobile as Dak Prescott, but he's a better leader than Dak Prescott. He has more rapport with his players. Like, I don't have to be brilliant, I just have to bring on the high-quality chat, the high-quality in the chat, the high-quality with guests coming on. I mean, that's where it's at. I'm just here, I'm just here to lift everyone up. It didn't did Susan Boyle sing sing a song about uh, lifting everyone up? You know, lift up. What, what was, I mean, Susan, you raised me up. I mean, that's what I'm about. Like when I am down and my soul is so weary, when troubles come and my heart burden be, then I am here and I sing here in the silence until you come and sit a while with me. You raise me up till I can stand on mountains. I mean, this is what Cooper Rush is doing. You raise me up to walk on stormy seas. I am strong when I am on your shoulders. You raise me up to more than I can be. I mean, this is Cooper Rush's theme song. There is no life, no life without its hunger. Each precious heart beats so imperfectly. Like, we're all vulnerable, right? We can all share our vulnerabilities here. It's a a safe space. But when you come and I am filled with wonder, sometimes I think I see eternity. I I mean, I can't put it better than, than Susan Boyle and... I don't know about you. Whenever I watch Cooper Rush play football, I'm just hearing Susan Boyle singing, you raised me up in the back. Where's Tucker? Why do you care about Tucker when I'm talking to you about Susan Boyle and, and the Dallas Cowboys? You know, what the hell is wrong with you? I mean, you're here to raise me up so that I can stand on mountains and, and walk on stormy seas. Like, I'm telling you that I am strong when I am on your shoulders and that you raise me up to more than I can be. Right? I mean... You come here, and I am filled with wonder. I mean, sometimes I think I can see eternity. Like, you raise me up. And, and Cooper Rush, bro, you raise me up. I think Cooper Rush should be the starting quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. I know that's an incredibly controversial position. But, heck, I'm going to say it. I'm going to stand behind it. I think he's a better leader than Dak Prescott. And he has the confidence of the team. And so many of you have asked for the following video. Like, 40. Do black lives matter to you? Right? You want Do the video for this? Do black lives matter to you? Yeah? Do black lives matter? Right, Karen? You want the fucking video? Fucking white piece of shit, you little fucking cussy ass bitch! You want to see the video for this? Oh yeah? You want to fucking go, Karen? You want to go, Karen? No! No! Until black lives matter! Until black lives matter, no life matters! That is not our fight. Until black lives mean something to this country. No. 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 You ain't going nowhere, though. 
Spencer. Until black. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Do black lives matter to you? Yeah. Do black lives matter to you? Look at that lovely melody. Do black lives matter to you? See, she's going fucking up white piece of shit, you little so, fucking pussy ass look, bitch. Look, she keeps getting higher and higher. Oh, yeah, and higher. you want to fucking so go, Karen? Yeah. Yeah, just walking up that staircase, man. So compelling, man. This is how no! to speak. No! You want to be a winner. Until Black Lives up, Matter! Uplifting. Until Black Lives pitch. Matter! I mean, wow. I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure that uh, Richard Spencer could could bring it at, at that level. I mean, uh, seriously, who, who, who did it better? That woman or Richard? Like a fucking hundred times. I am so mad. I am so fucking mad at these people. They don't do this to fucking me. We're gonna fucking ritualistically humiliate them. I am coming back here every fucking weekend I have to. Like this is never over. I win, they fucking lose. That's how the world fucking works. Little fucking kites can get ruled by people like me. Little fucking lots of roots. I'm fucking my ancestors. Does it better? One of the most hallucinogenically weird and scary displays of political authoritarianism we've seen recently. Joe Biden's FBI cornered Mike Lindell, the pillow guy who's often advertising in our air, at a fast food drive-through recently. Huh? Lindell described what happened next. We go through a Hardee's drive-through. We pull around the back and we're just about going through. We pull through the drive-through. They take the order. We pull up and she says, pull ahead, you know, because they had to make the order part of it wasn't done. We pull ahead and a car comes perpendicular and parks like a little ways in front of us. And, I, and I've been around the block and I said to my buddy, I said, um, that's either a bad guy or it's, it's FBI. So then the FBI sees Lindell's cell phone, which he uses to conduct business. Now, amazingly, most liberals cheered the sun. If you don't like Mike Lindell, don't buy his pillows, but you don't have to sick the FBI on him. But they were happy the FBI was sicked on him. But Alan Dershowitz, who was a lifelong liberal Democrat, is an exception to this. Dershowitz is now representing purely on principle Mike Lindell in his lawsuit against the Department of Justice. Then he wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal explaining why he's doing this. 
Alan Dershowitz is a Harvard Law professor emeritus, and we're happy to have him join us today. Uh, Mr. Dershowitz, thanks so much for coming on. So you've already taken, an, I happen to know, a lot of heat from people you've known your whole life, fellow liberals, for being associated with anyone near Trump, but you're doing this anyway. It's going to get you disinvited from parties. Why are you doing this? I've always just gone where the Constitution points me. Uh, whoever the government oppresses and violates their constitutional rights, I'll defend them. I've defended communists and Nazis. I've defended Democrats like Ted Kennedy and Republicans like President Trump. I will continue to do so. When it comes to the Constitution, I'm not a conservative or a liberal or a Democrat or a Republican. I am somebody who wants to support the Constitution. And today, my old friends on the liberal left don't want me to defend the Constitution on behalf of conservatives, and they have tried to cancel me. That's why I wrote my book, The Price of Principle, because the price has been very high, yes. not so much on me, but on my family. The library in Chilmark, yes. Massachusetts, banned my books and banned me from speaking. A library. That's how far this has gone in liberal Martha's Vineyard. But you're rubbing it in their faces anyway, or effectively you are, maybe not intentionally, but by doing this, tell us why you think what the FBI did to Mike Lindell is scary. Well, first of all, if they had done it to a Democrat, uh, we would have every liberal Democrat, the ACLU, uh, complaining bitterly. First, they tracked him down. How would they know he was hunting and going to a Hardee's? Obviously, they had to have some GPS or some tracking mechanism, and we want to know whether they had a warrant for doing that. Then if they had a warrant and they stopped yeah. him, they should have just asked him for his phone. They should have subpoenaed the phone. They actually had a subpoena at the same time, but it didn't include his phone. See, if they had a subpoena, then it could have been challenged. But if you take the phone, then they get everything. They get lawyer-client privilege material. They get business material. Right. They get First Amendment-protected material. They know who's working along with Mike Lindell to try to do whatever he's doing, which I disagree with about undoing the election. I'm not representing Lindell because I agree with him at all. I'm representing Lindell in the same way that I would represent a liberal Democrat who was subject to the same kind of unconstitutional searching. And for that, I'm being highly criticized by people on the left. They say Trump is different. You can't apply the Constitution to him. They said that when they detained 110,000 Japanese Americans. This is different. They said that during McCarthyism. This is different. They said that during the Vietnam War. This is different. Now they're saying it with Trump, but it's not different. If you deny the constitutional rights to anybody, that precedent lies around like a loaded gun waiting to be picked up by any autocrat and waiting to be used against Amen. you and your family and your party. I mean, and it, it, a lot of these people don't have access to quality lawyers because they've been intimidated out of representing them. You're one of the last ones who will. And I, I really appreciate it. Alan Dershowitz, thank you. Thank you so much. So you may recall that when the fake duchess from Los Angeles and her brain dead husband told Oprah that the royal family is racist, Pierce Morgan called BS in them. Huh? Pierce not racist. What are you even talking about? But for doing that, the media accused Pierce Morgan of racism and he was fired from his job. And then when his old friend Sharon Osbourne decided to defend Pierce Morgan, the media accused Sharon Osbourne of racism, too. In fact, Sharon Osbourne's co-host at CBS suggested she was a bigot for asking how exactly is Pierce Morgan a racist for pointing out that the fake duchess was lying. So for the first time, Sharon Osbourne is explaining what exactly happened. And she does it on her new show, Sharon Osbourne to Helen Back, which is now on Fox Nation. It's out on Monday. OK, I think I can 
live without uh, Sharon Osbourne's perspectives. But yeah, I saw this Alan Dershowitz op-ed in the Wall Street Journal and I was moved. He says the Justice Department went too far in seeking a search warrant against Mr. Trump's property at Mar-a-Lago. Could have asked the court to enforce the subpoena it issued and taken other less intrusive measures. It was also wrong in opposing a special master and demanding that the department's own lawyers be the only ones to determine whether privileged material was seized. I also believe the department exceeded its constitutional authority by seeking and executing a search warrant against Mike Lindell's telephone, which gives investigators access to his computer files and other private and business data. The framers of the U.S. Constitution abhorred the British practice of issuing general warrants, which empowered the government to search entire homes and businesses. The seizure and search of a cell phone in today's connected world is more of a general search than just rummaging through a home. Your entire life is stored on electronic devices. So compelling argument there from Mike Dershowitz. So I was reading an article in the Atlantic magazine on how the Republican Party has become the party of extremists. And the article concludes, it's a review of three new books on the Republican Party. One of the challenges of our moment is that so many forces seem poised to drive people out of what remains of public life. So what's really driving people out of what remains of public life? Right? Maybe FBI overreach contributes that to that. I'd say more than anything, it's the lack of a sense that we have a public anymore. Right? The more diverse we get, that means the less we have in common with each other, right? the less public there is. All we have are segments and coalitions and lobbies and groups. Right? We don't have a public who can revolt against their overlord elites. Right? The elites can only rule by dividing the public. Right? The elites can only rule by making alliances with segments of the public. So the, the elites have essentially made an alliance with the upper class and the lower class, the, the Democratic Party, against the middle, right? We have a coalition of the fringe against the middle. Now, I'm not anti-elite and I'm not anti-populist. Sometimes I think the populists are right. Sometimes I think the elite are right, right? I'm not instinctively opposed to either one. I'm just describing what's happening. What I am opposed to is a decreasing sense that as Americans, we have anything in common with each other. Right? There's this decreasing, decreasing sense that there is even a public and a public space, right? So back to the Atlantic article. At some point, arguing with opponents galvanized by a completely different political calculus becomes enervating. Yeah. You know what's tiring? When you got nothing in common with your neighbors, when you walk down the street and you can't share the same language with people, when you have nothing in common. When I was walking around in Australia, I had a lot in common with almost everyone I encountered. When I walked down the street in Los Angeles, I seemed to have a lot in common with maybe 30% of the people I encounter. There's considerably less social cohesion, social trust, right? social connection, less of a sense of citizenship in the United States compared to Australia, particularly in America's most diverse cities. And so the more diversity means the less we have in common, which means it's very difficult to get along with people with whom you have next to nothing in common. So this left winger here writing in the Atlantic is essentially decrying the effects of diversity. She says it feels like shadow boxing at a time when the issues our society confronts, the pandemic, climate change, the international role of the United States, stark economic inequality have never been more pressing. I think there are a lot more important issues than this, such as rising crime rates and the mutilation and castration of children. 
right? And the increasing acceptance of sexual degeneracy, including pedophilia. The Atlantic concludes, the way forward is daunting because it calls for a new kind of politics that can generate the courage and strength to push back against a politics of fear and demonization. That means nothing. Right? There will always be fear and demonization. There will always be a human desire to denigrate other people. So conservatives are more likely to denigrate people who are not of their race or religion or community. But liberals are just as likely to denigrate other people, only they denigrate people based on a lack of liberal values for, for being tied to medieval, you know, ancient uh, folkways and uh, religious perspectives on life. So the people on the right most fear disorder and contamination. People on the left most fear ignorance and, and bigotry. But we all feel excited at, uh, you know, condemning other people, right? For, for people on the right, we, we tend to condemn other people who don't share our race, religion, culture, or community. So I was just watching Cheers, season one, episode 16, The Boys in the Bar. Uh-oh. What's the matter? Same thing's gonna happen at Cheers. It happened at Vito's Pub. Uh-oh. <laughs> so what happened at Vito's Pub? All right, so some uh, gay guys started going there, and very quickly, Vito's Pub turned into a gay bar. And the good citizens of the Cheers Bar don't want it turning into a, a gay bar. Right? That, that's not so extraordinary. Now, from a, a left-wing perspective, this is incredibly bigoted. But why don't say straight people deserve safe places too? Right? There's that Barney's Beanery in West Hollywood, which is the major heterosexual bar, and they had a sign-up, you know, no F-words allowed. And they got into a lot of trouble for that. But they were trying to carve out a safe space for heterosexuals in a homosexual-dominated community. And so the, the Cheers guys, they don't want it turning into a gay bar. Is that bad? Sam looks as terrific in black and white as he does in color, huh? Yeah. Looking at Tom breaks my heart. Hey, everybody. Hey, Sam. I mean, is this wrong that they want to keep a, a safe place for, for heterosexuals? I mean, do do white people deserve a safe place? Do Christians deserve a safe place? Do heterosexuals deserve a, a safe place? Do trads deserve a safe place away from the onslaught of degeneracy and the the left wing bullying and uh, education program? Well, we're uh, looking at your kisser in the morning rag here, Sam. Yeah, I saw that. Every time I look at this, I feel so proud of you. Yeah, I'm kind of glad I... Yeah, so Shelley Long, the waitress, is incredibly proud that uh, Sam Malone here uh, supports his former teammate who came out as gay. So Shelley Long is all aboard with the sexual degeneracy platform. I did that now. I think you are taking real strides in your development as a human being. You know, a couple... Right, so from a left-wing perspective... You know, the more sexual degeneracy that you're okay with, then the more strides you're taking as a human being. You know, the more you can move into that strategic, autonomous, buffered state where you rise above traditional folkways and religious prejudices, then the more advanced you are as a human being. But from a trad perspective, we're not buffered. We're porous, all right? What goes on in your home affects me. And even if you can't articulate why you're uncomfortable with this or that form of sexual degeneracy, doesn't mean that doesn't make that feeling or that sense any less valid 
than some highly articulated academic thesis. A couple of other chicks said that to me today. I think this uh, human being image is going to get me more action than cheap wine. Disavow. Always the high road. But the boys in the bar are not happy. Norm, Mm -hmm. what was that you said uh, yesterday when they were taking pictures about Vito's pub? What happened at Vito's pub? Don't worry, man. Talk to me, Norm. Talk to me, Norm. Come on, Norm. I think it's best he hears it from us. Uh, go ahead, tell him the story. What happened at Vito's Pub? All right, you heard of Vito's Pub. All right, there's a tipping point. All right, when a neighborhood changes, a pub changes, a synagogue changes, right? You've got your sacred spaces, your precious spaces, and then very quickly they can reach a tipping point into something that you feel is alien or degenerate. Yeah, it's a gay bar, right? Yeah, it didn't used to be. It used to be a great bar. I hung out there myself. Wow, what a story, Norm. <laughs> I'm not finished. There's more? One night, Vito lets a gay group hold a meeting in the back room, right? Uh... Right, so generally speaking, Orthodox Judaism was not really on board with the gay agenda until the last 20 years when modern Orthodoxy has become more and more friendly, inviting people up who, who are outwardly, publicly, aggressively gay and giving them honors and including special gay clubs in the modern Orthodox community. Gays for the metric system or something. Man, those are some formidable people. I mean, you can go up against a lot of groups, but I strongly recommend do not try to oppose gays for the metric system. I mean, these boys are organized. They're formidable. Story got in the newspaper. Gets a lot of attention. Next thing you know, Vito's pub turns into Vito's pub. (laughs) Whoa, what's so wrong with uh, Vito's Pub turning gay? So The Boys in the Bar is the 16th episode of the first season of the American situation comedy Cheers. So in this episode, Sam's former teammate Tom reveals his homosexuality and Sam slowly becomes supportive of him. The bar's regular customers express their disdain towards Sam's support and they fear that because of Sam's support of Tom, the bar will become a place full of homosexuals. So... Uh, initially, this episode was called Honest for the, for the time and for the circumstances, right? And so, according to the book, What's Good on TV, the, the concerns about losing regular anti-homosexual bar customers, if Cheers were to become a gay bar, is depicted as sympathetic toward the regulars and a practical argument instead of a strong moral argument. So some critics called this the definite highlight of season one. Other people call it a moral lesson. Now, what about more modern critics? They find it unfunny. They find it a message to tolerate homosexuals by making them appear ridiculous. They find the stereotypes of gay men outdated. And they, they feel it's just not progressive enough that uh, these men in the bar are tainted with uninformed stereotypes. Right? There are no regular LGBT characters in the cast, so the main characters are not challenged to grow after this episode to become more gay-friendly. The gay character in this disappears after the press conference, never to be seen again, even the supposedly gay guys turn out not to be gay. So apparently the character's homophobic remarks would make this episode uncomfortable to modern audiences and one of 10 things from Cheers that have not aged well. So here we go. 10 things from Cheers that have not aged well. The Boys in the Bar episode. 
So the boys fear that their favorite bar will become a gay hangout. Classy, right? I don't think you could get away with this today. All the regulars left, Sammy. Out went the oars and the moose heads. In came plants and ferns. Ferns. <laughs> Just don't want that to happen at Cheers. Whoa. Cool with the homophobia, bro. The worst is the fact that these characters who are making shamelessly homophobic remarks are supposed to be likable people. We are meant to relate to them and root for them, which is what makes this episode so uncomfortable for modern audiences. Are you feeling uncomfortable? I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. I don't believe that stuff. Bars don't turn gay overnight. You don't have to believe me. I have scientific proof. Cliff? It happened. See? Excuse me. I'm talking about them like they're ogres. The fact of the matter is there are gay people in this bar all the time. Look, the natural, normal human tendency is to think that people who are different from us are disturbing, are worthy of fear and, and disgust, right? Liberals feel disgust for people who hold to a traditional perspective on life, who believe in God, practice traditional organized religion, and are, quote-unquote, homophobic because they take a biblical attitude towards right and wrong. Well, no way. I haven't seen a gay guy in here in ages. Oh, I see you can spot a gay person? mile away and there are none in here right now nope looks like a straight crown to me <laughs> wow don't think you get away with this today all right number nine thing that's not age well in cheers is sam's violent threats towards diane number eight the severe lack of diversity it is honestly incredible how lacking this show is when it comes to diversity. The bar itself is set in the middle of a city, Boston, where you would expect to find people of all different backgrounds and walks of life, but this ceases to be the case. Well, I suspect that uh, uh, bars tend towards uh, domination by one ethnic group or another. Every main character in this program is white. Even the extras are pretty much exclusively Caucasian. It'd be one thing if the show was set in rural Indiana, but that this bar is set in the middle of a popular city, Boston, makes us scratch our heads in confusion. Like, where, where's the diversity? Where's the diversity? Everyone on this show is white. It makes you think that when you're, you're making your way in the world today, like it takes everything you've got and so you don't have energy left over you don't have you know tolerance left over for people who are strange and different and, and off-putting i mean people just want to take a break from all their worries it sure would help a lot wouldn't you like to get away i mean all those nights when you've got no lights the check is in the mail and your little angel hung the cat up by its tail and your third fiance didn't show i mean sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came you want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name and everyone is like you in many important ways. I mean, you roll out of bed, Mr. Coffee's dead, the morning's looking bright, and your shrink ran off to Europe and didn't even write. And your husband wants to be a girl. But be glad there's one place in the world where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. But there's some transphobia in these links, which is pretty disturbing. Too ugly to be gay. <laughs> Too ugly to be out. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say anything, but you've gone so far in proving you're open-minded, Norman. There are two homosexual gentlemen in this bar at this moment. Come on. Get out of here. That can't be true. 
So what about the transphobic lyrics in the theme song? All right? Transphobic. Listen to the uncut version of the theme song, Your Husband Wants to Be a Girl. Right? This is listed off as one of the worst possible scenarios a person can possibly go through to drive them towards the bar where everybody knows your name. I mean, the transphobia, it just jumps off the, the screen. I mean, we're supposed to laugh at the idea of a man deciding to transition. I mean, this may have been okay in the 1980s, but these lyrics wouldn't fly in today's age. And then there's Norm's one-liners about Vera, his disgust for Vera. That, that's not okay. And then there's Sam and Diane slapping each other. And there's Carla's negative attitudes towards, towards women. And then Sam striding over to Diane's house and literally knocking down her door to demand sex. And then she has to sit him down and teach him that violence and hostility has no place in a romantic relationship. Sad. Come on, get out of here. They told me they were gay, that they appreciated what Sam had done. That's right, guys. They're here right now, and you don't even know who they are. Ah, she's superior. Because she, she knows that there are two homosexuals in the pub, and... Uh, People don't even know who they are. Okay. Bloody hell. What am I going to play now? All right. So supposedly Republicans are the real extremists, right? Well, this is Spain's Ministry of Diversity and Gender Ideology. And to me, she sounds pretty extreme. Sino para hablar de educación sexual por ejemplo, que es un derecho de los niños y de las niñas, señoría, independientemente de quiénes sean sus familias, sino para hablar de educación sexual. Children have the right to have sex with anyone they want. Right, that, that's essentially what she's saying. There used to be a translation. I don't know what happened to it. So Spain's Minister of Diversity and Gender Ideology. Children have the right to have sex with whoever they want. It's their right. Oi. Let's play some Peter Zion. And some bourbon and really thought about it. Like, holy crap, the Russians don't know how to fight a war. We could totally kick their ass. But they see this as a war for their existential survival, which means that every tool is on the table. And if we get to the point where the Russians can overwhelm Ukraine and then come for NATO, we know we will have to fight them. And we know we will beat them on the conventional battle. And then Putin will use nukes. So there's a documentary on Netflix called Nail Bomber Manhunt. And this is a lefty I've who got a different perspective. Infiltrated the neo-Nazis in Britain. I spent 10 years undercover in the far right. It, it was so much worse than I thought it was going to be. Really? It was hardcore. The first years especially, it was like full-on Nazi. And people were like competing to be as radical as possible and there was talk about starting a race war yeah the race war we would come to a time where we needed to like kill people and we'd have hit lists and then like you'd have like the bomb manuals themselves In the 1990s, there was trouble in the streets. A lot of tension. All someone had to do was light a match. But we didn't 
think anyone was really going to do it. But then one person did. We had the series of bombings in diverse areas in London. Very sad. And they're all encouraged, perhaps by the, the British National Party, under John Tyndall. Remember John Tyndall? He was uh, succeeded by... This interview is being tape recorded. I am Detective Sergeant Terence Bowden, attached to the anti-terrorist branch at New Scotland Yard. The other officer present is... Detective Constable Philip Johnson from the anti-terrorist branch of New Scotland Yard. The date is the 1st of May 1999, and the time is now 18.13, according to my watch. You know, the whole idea of us sitting here is to get to the truth. I'll just be the spark, that's all. The spark that would set fire to this country. The thoughts, they were getting stronger and stronger. I just couldn't get out of my head. My destiny, you know? Eventually I woke up one morning and I wasn't thinking about it anymore. I was going to do it. So when were you intending to blow it up? Saturday. Half past five. So the Republicans have become the party of extremists. So the leftists, they, they just want legitimate government, guys. A couple of days today and tomorrow for the show. And uh, I'm going to start today with a piece that was in the Washington Post by Jennifer Rubin. And if there's anybody that's worse than Max Boot, it's Jennifer Rubin. They're both right in the same camp. I mean, these are people that at one time called themselves conservatives, and now they've decided conservatives are bad. So uh, Rubin has written a piece at the Washington Post, published, uh, let's see, on September 14th. And uh, the title is funny. Uh, Elena Kagan to her colleagues, you're why the Supreme Court has lost legitimacy. So here we have uh, Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan castigating her fellow justices on the bench because it's their fault that the Supreme Court has lost legitimacy, not the left's fault, not all the lefties. You see, this is hilarious to me. What Kagan essentially is saying, and I'm going to get into this piece, but what she's saying is that, you know what, your activism has caused people not to trust the court. Now, I find this all fascinating because, you see, the left for years considered the court to be completely legitimate while it was being activist. But when the court uses the same activism to go in the other direction, then it's not legitimate anymore. When Donald Trump wins the 2016 election, the Democrats can cry foul and say he's not legitimate. When Joe Biden wins the 2020 election and Donald Trump cries foul, well, we've got to investigate and do all we can to get rid of this guy so he never runs for office again. You see, this is the major problem with nationalism. I talked about it last week. I talked about it this week. But it is really the major problem with nationalism, the central authority, is that when conservatives start talking about nationalism, they think, well, if we just could, if we could just create a one people ideology, and of course, everyone rallies oh, around that. It's, it's in the op opposition to globalism. I mean, give me a break. The Democrats and the left and the establishment, yeah, they're globalists, but they're also extreme nationalists. They believe that everything should come from the center. And you know what? We're more than likely to get, as I was talking with a colleague about this, and he said this, we're more than likely to get a leftist fascist than we are anything else. And we have it, right? And this is what we have in America right now. Conservatives that somehow think that we're going to get control of the center and then we're going to be able to run the country and do all these, they're living in a dream world. It's a fantasy world. It's never going to happen. You know what's more likely to happen? What we're seeing right now. The left gets control of everything and they abuse the tar out of their political opponents. We're, we're going to see that happen more times than not with strong central power. And the fact is that the Democrats are whining about the Supreme Court right now, it's hilarious because from the 1950s, really, you can even go back to the 40s. Beginning in the, the 40s, you can even say during the administration of Franklin Roosevelt into the 30s, but Really beginning in the 40s, you started to see a major shift left on the court. 
And what the Democrats figured out is that they could use the court to enforce all of their unpopular uh, culture war agenda. I mean, this is what they did. And so if the conservatives somehow gain control of the court, the originalists, which I would even say that the majority of the court is not really originalist. I mean, they still believe in the 14th Amendment, and et cetera, et cetera. But if they could gain control of the court and they start to undo some of this stuff, which, frankly, as I've talked about on the show before, really doesn't have a whole lot of basis in the original Constitution. This is the piece last week where you had a law professor whining about the fact that, well, originalism is dangerous because, well, I mean, if we have that, uh, then all these things that we did are going to be undone because they know, they know they can't get it through the legislative channel. They know that they can't, uh, if, if you have an originalist interpretation, the original Constitution does not allow for this stuff. I mean, they know it's really unconstitutional. So they were using the court as an extra legal method. Well, here you have Elena Kagan standing up and saying, hey, the problem with this is that we're, we're, we're legislating from the bench, <laughs> which is hilarious. Now, uh, Rubin actually makes a valid point, one part of the essay, and I'll, I'll talk about it when we get there. But this is the same Jennifer Rubin, of course, that you know I said all kinds of stupid things at the Washington Post. But So she says, if Chief Justice John G. Roberts Jr., notice how she lists his whole name, John G. Roberts Jr., not just John Roberts, John G. Roberts Jr., John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. I mean, that's kind of what you're getting. He's Chief Justice, making, kind of making fun of his name. John G. Roberts Jr. has chosen to close his eyes to the Supreme Court's role in its own legitimacy crisis and defend his radical colleagues. Justice Elena Kagan has chosen to be a clear-eyed truth-teller. If he's chosen to close his eyes and defend his radical colleagues, kind of like the left did for decades on the court, when you had William Brennan essentially say, well, you know what we can do? If I can get five votes, I can do anything I want. The Constitution really doesn't matter anymore. And you had every leftist giving cover for these morons. So, I mean, what's the difference? There's no difference. The, the, the hypocrisy in all this is just hilarious. The left now, we got to abolish the Supreme Court. we got to pack the Supreme Court. we gotta do, we got we to damage the court. We can't have all these things happen. The court can't work against us. You see, as in the situation of any time in American history, right? We can go back to the 18th century and talk about the Federalists. Go back to that point. What was the real issue there? Power. The Federalists were worried about their power, which is why they were advocating secession in 1794 and 1801 and 1804. They understood that they were losing. Okay, so some good points there by Brian McClenahan, a historian pointing out that the left was able to accomplish much of their agenda through the courts. Now they are shocked and dismayed that uh, they no longer control the U.S. Supreme Court, that uh, things have, have spiraled away from their control. Therefore, the, the court now, now it must be illegitimate because the, the left doesn't control it. So sad. This morning, forensic evidence taken from the wrecked building is being minutely examined by the bomb squad. All right, we're talking about the Netflix documentary here, Nail Bomber Manhunt One from 1999 Britain. was a calculated act of defiance by the IRA after the discovery in Southampton. But what we hadn't had experience of was a bomb of that type in the middle of a pedestrianized shopping high street. So some right-wingers start setting bombs off in the most diverse and gay parts of London. And for no reason whatsoever, right? It's not like there was anything amiss in these areas. It's not like, oh, there was a massive spread of, of a deadly disease that was spawned out of uh, places like this. It's not like these areas had disproportionate amounts of crime antisocial behavior, welfare delinquency, low educational attainment. No, it's just for no reasons whatsoever. Annette, hi, Simon Foy here. I was young, fresh-faced, inexperienced, quite aspiring, probably slightly naive potential commander to Brixton Division. The fact of, of the matter is life is struggle. And people are competing with other people and with other groups. Resources are limited. Human desires are infinite. Ergo, diversity and proximity create frequently conflict. 
And, and people on the left think that the conflict is somehow anomalous. That they think that human beings are just basically born good, and it's only evil right-wing structures such as capitalism that oppress people and distort people. And if only we can educate people out of their primitive bigotry, everything's going to be peachy. Well, you can't. Right? The, the right and left are bigoted about different things, but everybody feels bigoted. Like Everybody gets satisfaction out of disdaining other groups. The left gets satisfaction out of disdaining the, the bigots, and the bigots get satisfaction out of disdaining those who are different from them. Which was the most challenging place to, to work. So why? Why was it the most challenging? It was quite can, a tense Can you guess? Atmosphere. Can you guess why this incredibly diverse, this incredibly black part of London was the most challenging place to work? Wow. Maybe it has something to do with the astronomical crime rates in this particular area. Maybe it has to do with the widespread pervasive antisocial attitudes. Maybe it has something to do with the you know, low rates of educational attainment, right? The, the small amount of social cohesion and social trust, right? Maybe there are pathologies in this particular community, right? That make it such a hard part to place to work. Maybe the more diverse we are, such as in this community, meaning the less we have in common with each other, meaning the less cohesion, less social trust, the worse things get, which is exactly what happened. There was lots and lots of speculation about what was going on and who was responsible for it. A whole load of reasons went through my mind. We knew there was some gang violence brewing up and there'd been some shooting. Okay, gang violence, right? I mean, which groups go for, for gang violence, right? It's not Asians. It's, it's not whites, right? It's uh, other groups who tend to get into gang violence, which becomes incredibly deadly and disruptive. In Los Angeles, right, in the gang database, 47% of black men between 21 and 24 were in that gang database. And it wasn't 47% of Asian men, wasn't 47% of Mexican Americans, wasn't 47% of Japanese Americans or Chinese Americans or European Americans. It was 47% of African Americans between 21 and 24 who were in the LAPD gang database. It's fairly recently, wasn't that? And people were sort of saying, come on then, you know, what are you gonna do about it? Don't you think, sir, it is time to come clean and say you have not got enough police officers to do the job that is necessary within this community? Ah, so the problem is not enough police officers to get the job done. But if they bring in more police officers, there'll be opposition. Oh, you're over-policing us. Generally speaking, these communities don't like being policed. They would rather have massive rates of crime and less... Uh, white law enforcement in their midst. People felt underprotected and overpoliced. Underprotected and overpoliced. What what a phrase. Underprotected and overpoliced. Right? Protection and police go together. Right? You can't feel protected without police in this sort of community. So they want utopia. They want to be overly protected but without police. Right? They want to have their cake and they want to eat it too. 
We'd all been through the Brixton riots of 81. Deaths in custody. We've been through all that. Oh, deaths in custody for no reason whatsoever. Right? These were good boys just getting their life together. Right? They didn't do anything wrong. Right? You had these riots where one immigrant segment of society you know, raised holy hell, just went on a criminal rampage and largely trashed their own community, just like the L.A. riots in, what, 1991. But uh, this guy who's speaking, right, this uh, black Brit, he's got a chip on his shoulder because of the police, right? His community trashed his neighborhood and went on a crime rampage, but he hates the white police for trying to stop it. That kind of stuff. So a lot of us in the community weren't that happy or comfortable working with the police. No, you would rather be affiliated with criminals and antisocial sociopaths and gang members. Didn't trust them. The police. Right, you didn't trust them because they would arrest your comrades who are committing crimes. They're outraged by stop and search. Stop and search is incredibly effective, all right? You want to reduce murder? You want to reduce criminal violence? You want to reduce the destruction of communities? Right? Then you implement stop and frisk where you're likely to find young men walking around with guns. Stop and frisk, incredibly effective policing, but much of the black community is absolutely outraged at this effective means of policing that would dramatically reduce murder rates. They're outraged at policing that reduces murder. Like, call me crazy, like Steve Saylor, I view myself as an anti-murder activist, right? I like things like stop and frisk. I like public policies that reduce needless murder, needless rape, needless violent crime, needless breaking and entering. Stop our area because of the bombing. Please stop and search was a real issue when I was young growing up. Yeah, it was a real issue because it was the most effective police tactic at reducing murder that was largely carried out by members of your community, right? Not by members of the police community, by your community is out there murdering and raping and breaking and entering and doing grievous bodily harm. And stop and frisk is the most effective way to prevent that. But you don't want that. You would rather the murder and the rape go on, buddy. Going into Brixton on a Saturday afternoon with friends, going to record shops and things like that. And he's mad at the police. He should be mad at his own community. His bad behavior of his own community causes police tactics to try to reduce the wanton rape and murder and pillage and grievous bodily harm by his own community. But he can't face that it's his own community that's doing these horrible things that cause out police tactics such as stop and frisk. Right? So stop and frisk. Reduces the murder rate, reduces the rape rate, reduces, you know, criminal rampages. And he's got a chip on his shoulder against stop and frisk because he can't face that it's his own community that's the source of the problem. And the police are doing the best they can with out of control crime. You know, one of the things that would happen most Saturdays is you get stopped and searched by the police. Yeah. And you should be blaming your own community for that. Your own community behaves so badly that the police were forced to implement extraordinary measures. So why aren't you pissed at your own community? Why don't you take responsibility for your own community, your own community's problems, instead of trying to out, outweigh, you know, offload all your problems and your frustrations in life on the out group 
who's doing the best they can for the horrible situation created by your comrades, by people who look like you. The senior policeman who runs this area was telling me today that the advice he'd give you lot is to think seriously about joining the police force. He hasn't got enough. <laughs> Friends would get taken to the police station, come out with bruises. And, and his friends never did anything wrong, right? They never raped anyone. They never sold any drugs. They never engaged in any criminal behavior. They were just sitting at home reading their Bibles when the police came and took them to the police station and beat them down, right? You really believe that? You think your friends, right, were just law-abiding citizens, productive members of society who were picked down by the police for no reason whatsoever? Like, give me a break. I'm so sick of this victim mentality. It's people like you who are the problem. Tell you they got punched in the face by a police officer. Oh, they got punched in the face by a police officer for no reason whatsoever. They were just sitting at home doing their calculus work, right? Doing their trigonometry homework, and police broke down the door and started punching them when they were just trying to study calculus. Really? Give me a break. That was, that was fairly normal. Yeah. Why was it normal? Because your community was behaving abominably, horribly, murderously, raping, stealing, breaking and entering, pissing and defecating and destroying everything that's decent and good. Maybe look at your own community and uh, maybe ask them to dial back on the murder and the rape. Now those are the things that sowed the seeds of antipathy between the community and the police. Oh, yeah, Th those were the things is because of the police's actions. It wasn't because your community was murdering and raping and breaking and entering and behaving horribly and sucking up enormous amounts of social welfare, paying back little into the public purse, overall being a tremendous drain on society and giving very little back and harboring anger and bitterness towards all that's decent. It's the police. Now to the day's other news. Detectives investigating yesterday's bomb explosion in Brixton in South London say they're keeping an open mind about who planted the device. The attack is not being linked to a known terrorist group. Well, we've had lots of people that have come. And uh, the community not terribly interested in helping the police. All right. When people get gunned down in black communities in the United States, the community does very little to assist the police in bringing murderers to justice. The community basically joins ranks and protects murderers and thereby tacitly and explicitly encourages more murder, more breaking and entering, more rape, more criminal behavior because they won't do anything to bring the murderers and the rapists to justice forward uh, but no one has been able to tell us anything particular uh, about the bomber at this moment in time no one really had a clue of anything was it a group of people was it one person it created a real fear the police were not really monitoring the fire right at that time they say they were and you know and of course people were getting picked up every now and then but there was a mindset at the top of the security services to say that the fire right weren't a threat they just wrote about these things. They weren't going to carry it out. Well, sometimes the far right are a threat. Sometimes the far left are a threat. Right? Sometimes Antifa is the problem. And sometimes it's the more extreme elements of the MAGA crowd that are a problem. You know, no group is sacred. No group is in and of itself ipso facto holy. 
you know, just a bunch of hooligans. Why are we having to look at these people? Searchlight was a private intelligence operation. We infiltrated and monitored fascist groups. We'd been warning about it for years. Terrorist movement defending the last stand, taking on the system. Kind of an underground guerrilla army. And it was all about terrorism. It was all about killing people. So there is a new court case, legal case against Antifa, a first of its kind Antifa prosecution that could have implications far beyond this particular case. So if the case against the San Diego 11 succeeds, it could open the doors to conservative prosecutors around America targeting a progressive social movement. Antifa, progressive social movement, is a bunch of lefty communist thugs. So prosecutors in the San Diego case have asked the Superior Court of California, its judge overseeing the case, to grant a protective order forbidding the defense attorneys from copying or sharing any documents that identify the victims of the attacks by Antifa with anyone outside the legal team. So this move, usually reserved for cases with the mafia, is designed to protect witnesses and victims from being further targeted by their aggressors because they know that the Antifa crowd will dox and destroy. Prosecutors say the victims' names need to be kept secret because they might be targeted. These were dangerous times, and at the end of the day, he wanted to stop these people. The more we can find out what they're up to, the more we can stop what they're doing, draw attention to it. It just puts what... It demeans the white man in this country now, people like me. So, you wanted to put some bombs down? Yeah, yeah, as many as I could. One a week. Oh, so this guy's not uh, not a big fan of diversity. Why did you put nails in them? It means they'd smash windows, stick into people, maim people, and kill people. From the new Netflix documentary, Nail Bomber Manhunt. Uh, pretty good documentary about a radical right kid who started setting off nail bombs at many of London's most diverse and gay areas. And uh, sets off one bomb, then seven days later sets off another bomb, and uh, on he goes. So, not exactly a friendly place like uh, the Cheers pub, which is sadly lacking in diversity. On the other hand, it didn't have nail bombs going off. <laughs> nah, she's kidding. Everybody here checks out all right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It, uh, it occurs to me that uh, Cliff 
Hasn't had a date in quite some time. Right. Oh, oh, yeah, Norm. Well, uh, how come we've never seen this Vera you're allegedly married to, eh? Could uh, we have a couple of beers, please? You bet. Light beers? Hey, Bruh. take a look. Hey, hey, you're Sam Malone. Right. Yeah, yeah, I saw your picture in the paper this morning. Ah, that's good. Gee, can't wait to read that book. I'm not Very a suspicious. baseball fan, but that sounds interesting. Yeah, it should be pretty good. Oh, listen, can we have light beers, please? <laughs> light beer. <laughs> wow, so the whole gang gets organized and uh, decides to, to, to walk out and try to find a, a straight bar. Okay, good times. Let's remember the good times. Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter, right, Karen? Fucking white piece of shit, you little fucking kissy-ass bitch! Oh, yeah? You wanna fucking go, Karen? No! No! Until black lives matter! Until black lives matter, no life matters! That is not our fight. Until black lives mean something to this country? No. No. Always educating. Always bullying. Until black... Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter? 